Hello, everybody. It is so good to see you. I will let you know that as much as I tried, I could not be in a stationary location for the presentation today. I hope everything goes okay. Um, I don't seem to be having any glitches, but I'm in the car. We pulled over and I told my daughter we need to find like a restaurant or something so I can, you know, go in and go to the bathroom and come out and start. She found a parking lot with a Marshalls. So she's now shopping in Marshalls <laughs> while I'm here doing the presentation. Um, so I'm hoping we don't have any problems. I've got internet. Everything seems to be okay. But if there are any issues, it's not because I'm, I don't love y'all. <laughs> so, um, okay. So I'm going to just jump into today's presentation, which is the law of the harvest. Uh, now, just to, you know, have an idea of what this is all about. Um, this is, you know, we've, we've talked about all of these leading up to all of these, this presentation, all these, all of these um, classes that we've had have talked about various different things to lead us up to next week's presentation is like the big crescendo raising patriots. But the law of the harvest is about harvesting what we have been growing what we've been nurturing, the seeds we've been planting, the soil that we've cultivated, the the sun, the the rain, all of the nurturing that we've done um, to create this little garden of liberty in the hearts and minds of our children and in our own hearts. And the law of the harvest is a very important part of this because there are three major uh, things that I'm going to be talking about in relation to the law of harvest. One is limited government. The second is responsibility, and the third is self-reliance. So I just had pulled some some quotes here um, from the. Uh, do you guys see this? When I move this around, do you see this? My screen move? No, you just see the screen. Good. Okay. Uh, limited government. The democracy will cease to exist when you take away from those who are willing to work, and give to those who would not responsibility. I love this quote by George Bernard Shaw. Liberty means responsibility. That is why most men dread it. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Self-reliance. Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. The famous quote from uh, sorry, President John F. Kennedy. So we're going to start with limited government. In the uh, book, 5,000 Year Leap, if you guys have a copy of that, if you do not have an opportunity, if you have not had an opportunity to um, read through it, I highly, highly, highly encourage you to get this book and um, read the whole thing. But today we're just going to be talking about Principle 7. So uh, I would love for you to be able to read Principle 7. And it's on page 115, I believe, in the book, which is uh, where... Um, we are going to start. Principle number seven is equal rights for all special, um, equal rights, not, not equal things, sorry. Equal rights, not equal things. And Thomas Jefferson's quote was equal rights for all special privileges for none. So in, in the seventh principle, which is, there's so much good in this book, but this is my absolute favorite principle because so many people are getting confused by this idea of, of equal rights and equal things. So I'm starting out in the second paragraph. Every person is entitled to protection of his life and property. 
Therefore, it is perfectly legitimate to delegate to the government the task of setting up a police force to protect the lives and property of all the people. And, you know, that that's if you if you were to protect your property at all times, you you could do that. You you have a, a, a constitutionally protected right to sit on your porch with a gun, making sure nobody comes in your house. That what else would you ever get done? So we take that power authority that we already have and we give it grant it to the government to protect us we do the same thing for fire do you want to stand there with a fire hose just in case your house catches on fire so we give that power to the government to provide fire services but then they bring out this great example okay but suppose a kind-hearted man saw that one of his neighbors had two cars while another neighbor had one what would happen if, in a spirit of benevolence, the kind man went over and took one of the cars from his prosperous neighbor and generously gave it to the neighbor in need? Obviously, he would be arrested for car theft. No matter how kind his intentions, he is guilty of flagrantly violating the natural laws of his prosperous neighbor who is entitled to be protected in his property. Of course, the two-car neighbor could donate a car to his poor neighbor if he liked, but that is his decision and not the prerogative of the kind-hearted neighbor who wants to play Robin Hood. But suppose the kind-hearted man decided to ask the mayor and city council to force the man with two cars to give one of his, give one to his uh, neighbor. Does that mean... Does that make it any more legitimate? Obviously, this makes it even worse because if the mayor and city council do it in the name of the law, the man who lost his car has not only lost the rights to his property, but since it is the law, he has also lost the right to appeal for help in protecting his property. And there's another side of this. If the person, this benevolent person, will call him Jerry, if Jerry decides that he's going to be benevolent, benevolent, I said say it right, and he goes over to his neighbor and says, you know, you guys have two cars, I, and just the three of you, there's this family, they've got five kids, there's seven of them, they're walking a mile to church every Sunday, their kids got to walk to school, it's just not fair, and, and the, the guy's like, well, I need the two cars. I work, my wife works. I'm so sorry. I mean, if there's something else I can do for them, you know, I don't know. He needs a car. So he steals the car. Of course, he gets arrested. So then he goes and petitions the government. We need to pass a law to make sure that everything is fair, that everyone has a car. No one has to walk to church. No one has to walk to school in the cold. Everybody has a car. Everybody is treated fairly. So the, the government passes a law. Well, then Jerry gets a knock at his door a couple weeks later and says, we need your house. It's the law. So not only are you taking the rights away from infringing on the rights of others, you're infringing on your own rights. You're taking away the protection that you have by deciding to take it away from someone else. And and people tend to forget and, and not even understand uh, that that whole entire concept. This is a sign when Ron Paul was in Congress. Uh, this was a sign he had on his desk. Don't steal from the, don't steal the government hates competition. So I just thought that was, that was kind of, that was kind of funny. So there is a story. Uh, I remember when I first came across this story, 
I told my mom uh, about it. I'm like, oh my gosh, mom, there's this great story about Davy Crockett. Did you know that Davy Crockett served in Congress? And and I started telling her the story and she's like, yeah, I knew he served in Congress. Um, yeah, yeah, actually, I do remember that story. Really? Where did you hear it? Oh, they taught it to us in school. I've been robbed. Of course, they don't want to teach the story about Davy Crockett now because it talks all about what the government does not have the right to do. What isn't theirs to give? So it's the story is called Davy Crockett, not yours to give. Now, the, the synopsis is Davy Crockett was um, was was in Congress and a vote came to the floor. And the vote was uh, for this man who had served in the military. I think he served in the Navy and he had just done this incredible service to the country. And so the they all decided all the, the several members of Congress decided, well, let's get together and let's let's just vote him an award. We, we want to give him some kind of extra pension, um, ten thousand dollars for his service because his widow and they have this great story and everybody's all for it. And it's sure to pass. Well, this is what happened. Davy Crockett got up and he, he rose and he, and he made this speech before the vote. Mr. Speaker, I have as much respect for the memory of the deceased and as much sympathy for the sufferings of the living. If suffering there be, and any man, as any man in this house, but we must not permit our respect for the dead or our sympathy for a part of the living to lead us into an act of injustice to balance to the balance of the living. I will not go into an argument to prove the Congress that Congress has no power to appropriate this money as an act of charity. Every member upon this floor knows it. We have the right as individuals to give away as much of our own money as we please in charity. But as members of Congress, we have no right to appropriate a dollar for the from the public money. Some eloquent appeals have been made to us upon the ground that it is a debt due the deceased. Mr. Speaker, the deceased lived long after the close of the war. He was in office to the day of his death, and I never, and I have never heard that the government was in arrears to him. Every man in this house knows it is not a debt. We cannot, without the grossest corruption, appropriate this money as the payment of a debt. We have not the semblance of authority to appropriate it as a charity. Mr. Speaker, I have said we have the right to give as much money of our own as we please. I am the poorest man on this floor. I cannot vote for this bill, but I will give one week's pay to the object. If every member of Congress will do the same, it will amount to more than the bill asks. He then took his seat. Nobody replied. The bill was put on, the bill was put, did not pass. And uh, instead of passing unanimously, as was generously supposed, and as no doubt would have happened before the speech, it received but few votes and, of course, was lost. So one of his friends and a reporter came up to him afterwards and said, why, why, did, you, why did you make that speech? Why did you not make the vote? It, it was, it was a, the benevolent thing to do. It was the right thing to do. Everybody was for it. Why would you do that? Well, then he went to tell a story. And he said, you know, a couple of years ago when I was running, rerunning for office, I was going around the state of Tennessee talking to people and I came upon a man and uh, in the, in the, in the field, everybody kept saying, you should go talk to this man. So he, he went, walked up to him and he said, sir, my name is, is, is Davy Crockett. And he said, I know who you are and you're wasting your time here because I have no intentions of voting for you. 
and he said he was just like what um why I mean <laughs> you don't even know me so he so he said well because you made a vote uh, a couple years back you made a vote to give twenty thousand dollars to people um who were who had been the people of Georgetown who had suffered from the Georgetown fire and he said, well, you, you've got me there, sir. But I mean, don't you think it's the right thing to do? I mean, they were suffering. There was a fire. We we came out of, of session of Congress one day and the place was on, the whole town was on fire. And the very next day, of course, we, of course we went in to vote for money to help them. And he said, well, don't you, don't you think, I'm, I mean, wouldn't you do that too? And he said, uh, so, so Davy Crockett said, well, my friend, I may as well own up. You have got me there. But certainly nobody will complain that a great and rich country like ours should give the insignificant sum of $20,000 to relieve its suffering women and children, particularly with a full and overflowing treasury. And I am sure if you had been there, you would have done just what I did. And he said, absolutely not. It is not the amount, Colonel, that I complain of. It is the principle. You had as much right to give twenty thousand dollars, twenty million dollars as you get as you did to give twenty thousand. If you have the right to give to one, you have the right to give to another, and that will become corrupt. You will very easily perceive that a wide door, what a wide door this would be, and would open for fraud and corruption and favoritism on the one hand, and for robbing the people on the other. No, Colonel, Congress has no right to give charity. Individual members may give as much of their money as they please, but they have no right to touch a dollar of the public money for that purpose. So the the colonel was definitely um, taken. And he said, uh, the man said, you obviously cannot vote for you because you obviously either have no understanding of the Constitution or no respect for it. In either case, you are dangerous. And then he continued, so you see, Colonel, you have violated the Constitution in what I consider a vital point. It is a precedent fraud with danger for, to the country, for when Congress once begins to stretch its power beyond the limits of the Constitution, there is no limit to it and no security for the people. I have no doubt you acted honestly, but that does not make it any better, except as far as you are personally concerned. And you see, I cannot vote for you. I tell you, Davy Crockett said, I felt streaked. I could not answer him. And the fact is, I was so fully convinced that he was right. I did not want to. But he finally spoke because he knew he needed to. Well, my friend, you hit the nail upon the head. And when you said I had not sense enough to understand the Constitution, you were right. I intended to be guided by it and thought I had studied it fully. I have heard many speeches in Congress about the powers of Congress, but what you have said here at your plow has got more hard sound sense in it than all the fine speeches I ever heard. If I had ever taken the view, the view of it that you have, I would have put my head into the fire before I would have given that vote. And if you will forgive me and vote for me again, if I ever vote for another un unconstitutional law, I wish I may be shot. Well, he laughingly replied, yes, Colonel, you have sw sworn that before. No need to threaten your life, but I will take a chance on you and I will vote for you again. And, um, and, but he said under one condition, 
as you go around to the people, you let them know what we've talked about here and that you will not ever vote for that again so that they can hold your feet to the fire. And he said, well, um, Mr. Bunce, I never saw you before, though you say you have seen me, but I know you very well. I am glad to have met you and very proud that I may have been able to create and uh, make you a friend today. And then uh, he said that um, he, not only did the uh, gentleman go around, did, did the gentleman say he would vote for him, but he told all his friends and he was a very respected man in the community. And so he um and so he he told all his friends, you need to you need to vote for this. So he gave a speech and he was going around. Davy Crockett was going around the, the state talking to all these people. And he came home one night and because uh, and he, he was staying at this man's home. And he said, though, I was considerably fatigued when I reached his house and under ordinary circumstances should have gone early to bed. I kept him up until midnight talking about the principles and affairs of government. I got more real true knowledge of them than I had gotten in all my life before. So here's a farmer at his plow who understands the constitution and the principles behind it. And that was the country in which we lived. The people understood it more than, than um, we, we could ever possibly understand it today. And it was very simple. It's still very simple. But the thing is that it was taught. It was taught to children. They talked about it in churches. They talked about it in the, in the, in the, in the fields. They talked about it while they were hanging their clothes, talking to ladies, talking across the lines at the shops. I mean, this is the freedom was what they talked about. And Lex de Tocqueville said when he came to America, every single citizen knew what freedom meant and knew what their rights were, where they come from. And you could, they would, they would rather have their lives taken than give up even a small part of their freedom because they understood. Um, so then Davy Crockett finishes the story with his friend who asked, why did you why did you make that vote to not give the $10,000? And he said, you remember that I proposed to give a week's pay. There are in the house many very wealthy men who think nothing of spending a week's pay or a dozen of them for a dinner or wine party when they have something to accomplish by it. Some of those same men made beautiful speeches upon the great debt of, of, the, of gratitude which our country owed to the deceased, a debt which could not be paid by money, and the insignificance and worthlessness of the money particularly so insignificant a sum of $10,000 when weighed against the honor of the nation. Yet not one of them, not one of them responded to my proposition. Money with them is nothing but trash when it comes, when it comes out of the people, but it is the one great thing for which most of them are striving. And many of them sacrifice honor, integrity, and justice to obtain it. I just, that I'm like, wow, why is that story not going everywhere? Why are we not telling everyone about this? Well, this is talking about limited government. This is talking about that the government lies with the people, that they have no authority to spend what they're doing. I remember I was in Washington, D.C. a few years ago, and uh, the Uber dropped me off at a location, and I was trying to get my bearings and figure out which direction to go. And, I, and so I looked up and I said, well, what building is this? And it said Department of Agriculture. And I was like, oh, OK. And then I saw a bridge that went over to another building. I said, OK, what's that building? Department of Agriculture. What? Department of Agriculture. Department of Agriculture. It was a whole daggone city for the Department of Agriculture. Uh, Department of Agriculture wasn't on the original list <laughs> of departments. And I remember sitting on the couch when uh, President Bush came out in his, his inaugural uh, or his uh, uh, State of the Union address right after 9-11. My husband and I are sitting there on the couch together in Ohio. 
and the president says, and we are going to start a new department to protect the people called Homeland Security. And my husband gasped. And I said, what? And he said, those are the same words that Hitler used when he started his brown shirts to protect the people. And then right after that, right after he announces Homeland Security, he says, and here's Tom Ridge, the first uh, cabinet president over the, I'm like, you can't do that. You can't just say, we're going to start something. And here's the guy who's going to run it. You're going to run that through Congress. Well, in that next week, they had a unanimous vote across the floor. And I'm like, this is not good. If both sides love it, it has to be bad. So I got a copy of the, um, of the act, uh, the, the, the Patriot Act. And I read through it, the whole thing. And I wrote in margins and I highlighted things. And I was just, I mean, shocked, shocked. This is bad. This is creating the gulag. This puts more power with the president of the United States than Hitler had when he took over Germany. And the whole entire arm of, of, of Homeland Security is the arm of the president. And they have now all been given the same authority. No way. That is that is absolutely not within the confines of the Constitution. And we need to chain them down again with the Constitution. As um, Thomas Jefferson said, that that is what's going to keep them in check. Um, of course, it was good intentions, right? They just wanted to make sure that that the people, you know, were cared for and they and they was, was benevolent in the service of the nation. Well, this is an incredible quote um, that I actually read in a city council meeting uh, about 10 years, no, 20 years ago now. Um, I read this quote to the city council because they were trying to pass something benevolent. And I read it and, and the city administrator got so mad but the majority of the city council voted against it because of this quote. Most of the major ills of the world have been caused by well-meaning people who ignored the principle of individual freedom, except as applied to themselves, and who were obsessed with fanatical zeal to improve the lot of mankind in mass through some pet formula of their own. The harm done by ordinary criminals, murders, gangsters, and thieves is negligible, in comparison with the agony inflicted upon human beings by the professional do-gooders who attempt to set themselves up as gods on earth and who would ruthlessly force their views on all others with the abiding assurance that the end justifies the means. This is why we have most of the programs that we have. FDR, he started it with with his government program to make sure you know everybody was fed, everybody had a job. Um, Lyndon B. Johnson magnified it. Uh, I mean, it, it just has kept building and building. It's not just Democrat presidents. It's presidents on both sides. It's legislators and, and representatives on both sides. And, and it's just constantly building. And when the people don't understand that there is a limited government, a limited government, we have limited powers that we have given them, and they've just run amok with them. We talked about 1913 and how that was a very bad year. Well, those seeds that they planted have helped them be able to build and build and build on this and, and take something like the preamble and a small little thing where it says um, the, the common good and turn it into an entire welfare program that is literally taking the car from your neighbor to give it to someone else or taking the food off your plate, which we'll get to. Um, 
So the next one is responsibility. And the first part of responsibility is understanding what what it, what the constitution is what what our rights are where they come from and and understanding that when you limit the rights of others you're limiting the rights of yourself when you give more government more power to the government you're taking away individual rights that you have so the the tag for this is protect my right to protect my rights i must protect the rights of others um my son Jordan, we were when my kids were little, we were uh, on the beach in San Diego, and my son Jordan uh, had a um, a sandwich that he was carrying around on the beach, and the seagulls came after him, and they were just chasing him down the beach, and and I sent my husband after him to to go down there and 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 save my son from these birds who were nipping at his arms trying to get his sandwich. And, and my son was so upset and, and he came back and he was like, why would they do that? Why would they do that? And I told him, I said, it's because they don't know how to feed themselves. People have been feeding them, you know, and you hear that you see this all the time. You'll see these stories that say, don't feed the birds. Don't feed the animals. Don't feed, don't feed, don't feed. Why? Because they will come after you to get your food because they no longer know how to do it. Or you have created an easy way for them to get it. And then there's this great quote, give a man a fish and you feed him for a day, teach a man to fish and you feed him for a lifetime. So I explained this idea. I was, I was talking about when I was telling my son, son about the birds, he said, well, maybe people should stop feeding them so that they have to learn how to feed themselves. And I'm like, out of the mouth of babes, he was four years old. <laughs> you know, even he understood the concept. Um, so there's a um, there's a story in the in the resource guide. Um, let's see. No, okay. I have a book. I'm gonna have to to pull this up, and I apologize. It's gonna take me a minute because I was going to print it out and I forgot. But um, in in the book, women, America's last best hope. I have a, a story in there that tries, you know, kind of helps us understand uh, how this principle works. Um, so Thomas Jefferson said, a wise and frugal man, which shall restrain from injuring one another, shall leave themselves free to regulate their own pursuits of industry and improvement, and shall not take from the mouth of labor the bread it has earned. This is the sum of good government. I just summed up everything. He just he just explained everything we said. So the founders recognized this. They knew you can't take from one and give to another. That is theft. And, and that is the bread that they earned and they have a right to keep it. Okay, so this is the bread story. It's in Women America's Last Best Hope. I can't remember which chapter, but I'll send the bread story so you guys have it. So the bread story starts out with a quote from Thomas Jefferson. And now I'm going to tell the story of what this would look like in the colonial time. When they were all talking about freedom, they lived under oppression, they understood what it was, and they didn't want it. So this wouldn't have worked out so well for them. Can you imagine the outcome if you lived in the revolutionary era and government charity was introduced? You use the last $1 you have to your name to buy two bags of seeds to plant wheat. You then spend the next four months tilling, planting, and tending the wheat, and another month harvesting, bagging, and storing it. Then you take your bag of wheat to the mill where you grind it to flour so you can make bread to feed your family. Then you return home, make the bread dough, knead the dough, and let it rise. Finally, you get to the part where the bread goes in the oven. So you gather the wood, start the fire, heat up the bricks, and gently place your bread 
in the in the oven to bake. Of course, you must keep the oven at just the right temperature so you continually monitor the heat, adding wood as needed to the fire. In many cases, you go through this process in the heat of the day in the midsummer, and of course, you are wearing a corset and a full-length skirt and sleeves to your wrists. Wiping the drip, the dripping perspiration from your brow, you finally take the hot bread from the oven and set it on the table to cool. Suddenly, there is a knock at the door. The mayor comes in, cuts your loaf of bread in half, and starts out the door. What are you doing, you ask? I'm taking half your bread to the neighbor down the street. She is too, She was too sick to make bread today, and I told her I would make sure she had bread enough to feed her family. How am I supposed to feed my family? You ask, obviously outraged, that this man just barged into your house and stole half of your labors. The mayor turns to you agitated. You're in good health, he says. Make more bread. Then he takes your family's meal out the door with him. If things were this obvious today, maybe more Americans would be outraged. The problem is the 16th Amendment made robbing from the people much more sneaky. I am a firm believer in charity. My faith has taught me it is the pure love of Christ, and I try to practice it at every opportunity I can. I don't do it for the earthly reward. I do it because it's the right thing to do. It 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 gives me joy, and I and I want to be able to share. But when it's forced, it's not the same thing. And the 16th Amendment has made it so sneaky that you don't even see half of your paycheck and you thank the government and get excited when you get some of your own money back with your tax credit, tax return. <laughs> Ours don't do that anymore. Um, okay, so let's go back to the bread story and fast forward a few years. The woman who was sick has now passed on and has now passed on and her children and their children are sitting around their table. A neighbor comes to visit them and asks why they are sitting at the table. We're waiting, they say. Waiting for what? Asks the neighbor. Our bread. It's dinner time and we are waiting for our bread. Where does the bread come from? Asks the neighbor. We don't know, answers the family. It just always comes. Why don't you make your own bread? Asks the woman. Why, says the family, when the bread is always brought to us? Now let's fast forward another generation. This time the family is sitting around the living room when there is a knock at the door. It is the city magistrate bringing their half of bread. Well, it's about time, complains the mother. You get later and later every day. And all you bring us is this measly half a loaf of bread, says the father. How are we supposed to live on that? I'm sorry, says the magistrate. That is all we have set aside for you. It is plenty to live on. Well, I want more, says the father, walking to the window. Look at those people across the street. They they have loaves every day. What do they need with four loaves? It's not fair that they have four loaves and we only have half a loaf. If you want my vote in the next election, magistrate, you'll make sure my family gets a full loaf of bread. Fast forward a few months more to the next election, and what you find are two candidates trying to win votes. I'll make sure every family gets a full loaf of bread. One loaf of bread? Well, how can one family live on that? I'll make sure every family gets two loaves of bread. And on it goes. Can you see the absurdity of it all? Where's the equality in the bread story? Neither the woman who had the bread taken nor the woman who received it were treated equally. You may say at least the woman who was sick received the bread and that that made it equal, right? Not so, because they got less 
and the whole thing was unjust because somebody can come take something from them. They now have a whole loaf. Someone else comes and takes half of their loaf. It just continues in a spiral. So let's go back one more time to our story. The magistrate has just left the woman's home with the bread he took from her. She is standing in her kitchen, looking at her little children, sitting around the small, modest table, realizing she has just enough to feed her little family when a knock comes at the door. She walks to the door and answered it, answers it to find the local pastor standing in the doorway. Good evening, pastor, she says. How can I help you? Well, sister, there is a woman in our parish who is sick and unable to feed her family, and we are hoping you could share some of your bread with her. Oh, pastor, she said, the magistrate just came and took a half a loaf of my bread. I only have just enough to feed my family, and there is none to spare. Yes, says the pastor. We have been running into that a lot tonight. The magistrate collected bread to give to the very sister I have come to talk to you about, but he only gave her a crust of bread, which is not near enough to feed her family. But pastor, the magistrate took half our loaf of bread for the woman. How is it that she only received a crust? The magistrate and his friends are eating well tonight, the pastor returns. He keeps a portion of the bread for taxes to cover paying the wages as a tax collector and some more to cover the cost of collecting the bread. And that is as clearly and simply as I can put it, how our government works today. When the government can forcibly take money with no accountability whatsoever, spend it however on whatever they want, and the people have no say in the matter, then the government becomes a monarchy and or a dictatorship and history repeats itself again and again. This is what our founders fought against. This is the tyranny and oppression that they sacrificed everything for. So why are we embracing it now? The reason America is so great is not we because we provide equal things. It's because the constitution guarantees equal rights. Uh, so self-reliance, provide for myself and family, and then help others in need. That's, that's the whole entire goal of self-reliance. Okay. In 2020, when COVID shut down America, I made a trip to the grocery store. And like many of you, found the aisles bare of everything from toilet paper to soap. Things you'd think you'd find around the house all the time, just completely wiped out. It reminded me of a story that I read a few years ago. It was about a rancher who was looking for a hired hand to help him with work on his ranch. Unfortunately, it was a very busy time of year for farmers and ranchers, and a lot of the experienced ranch hands were already employed with other ranchers. But he came upon one man who looked like he would work pretty hard. And he asked the man, do you have any experience in ranching? And the man responded, yes, I can sleep when the cold wind blows. And the rancher was like, anybody can sleep when the cold wind blows. I need somebody who's going to work hard, put in a hard day's work, somebody I can trust and count on. So the rancher rolled his eyes and walked out and went on looking for someone else. But everywhere he went, he couldn't find anyone who could take the job. So finally, out of options, the rancher went back to the man who could sleep when the cold wind blows, and he hired him. 
To the rancher's surprise, however, the man ended up being a really good worker. He put in a hard day's work every day and oftentimes was still working when the rancher went back to his house. And he couldn't understand why the man had said, I can sleep when the cold wind blows, when he was such a hard worker. Then one day, a great storm arose across the valley, and the rancher suddenly jerked up out of his bed when a cold wind blew through his window. Rushing out the door, he went straight to the ranch hand's quarters, trying to wake him up. Get up, get up, he said. There's a storm. But the ranch hand didn't move. No matter how hard the rancher tried, he could not get the man to wake up. He was sound asleep. Completely exasperated, the rancher cursed under his breath as he went outside the door and ran to the field to gather in the horses. But when he got to the field, the horses weren't there. Confused, he ran to the barn to bar it closed. But when he got there, the barn doors were closed, the horses were inside, and everything was shut up tight. Confused even further, he ran to the field to check on the hay, to make sure that it was tacked down and covered. But when he got there, it was already done. Everywhere he went, from one place to another on the ranch, every task had been completed. And suddenly, he realized that the ranch hand had already done it. And then he remembered the words the man spoke when he went to hire him. I can sleep when the cold wind blows. And then the rancher knew what he meant. Every night, that ranch hand prepared for the storm, not knowing when it would come, but knowing when it did, he would be prepared. The time to look for hand sanitizer is not when everybody is running to the store to get it. The time to get flashlights and battery chargers is not when the hurricane is on the horizon. I think this is a really good opportunity for us to reassess our priorities, to sit down as a family and figure out what we should have in our home and talk about what we can do to be more prepared if something like this happens again. And honestly, it's not an if, it's a when. Whether it's a hurricane, a tornado, a virus, whatever it may be, things like this happen. In 2005, Hurricane Katrina hit the Gulf Coast. One of our military friends was stationed at Keesler Air Force Base. He was part of the evacuation team for families on the base. He told me he was astounded to see the families show up with nothing but the clothes on their backs. They didn't bring any food or even water bottles. Moms brought their babies with only enough diapers and formula to last one day when they were going to be there for at least three. He said the families thought the government was going to provide for them. They were shocked when they showed up to find nothing but a small room with a few blankets and just enough space for two bunk beds. We can't count on the government to take care of us. And it's not the job of the government to do so. If you look at all the government websites like FEMA or prepare.gov, you'll see a list of things that we need to do to be prepared. They're counting on us to take care of ourselves and we need to take care of ourselves and then be prepared to help our friends and neighbors. For our family, 2020 was a big wake up call. It opened a conversation about how we can be more prepared and support each other so that no matter what happens, no matter what comes our way, we too can sleep when the cold wind blows. So that brings us to um, the Pilgrim experiment. So we talked about how the government has a specific finite role, what our role and responsibility is. And a lot of people today are talking about, you know, socialism and communism, why it's so benevolent and why we should do that. Well, how we learned all the things that we did that created this limited government was from the experiment that the pilgrims uh, went through themselves. 
they're the ones that figured it all out. From the beginning of our nation, uh, this is on page 256, that's supplemental materials of the resource guide. From the beginning of our nation, we were a unique people. We were unique because we came to America to seek a better life. America was a new frontier. It was a place where new things could be tried and the survival of the colonists who came here depended on trying new things. The old things just didn't work in the new world and God never intended them to. The people of America had an intimate knowledge of the Bible, which told them who they were, what their rights were, and from whence those rights came. They believed not only could they govern and provide for themselves, but that according to God, they were expected to. It was the pilgrims who first introduced the concept of freedom to America, for it was they who discovered it. The experiences they had in that little colony were a living tutorial of the principles and blessings of freedom the responsibility to maintain it, and the prosperity that flows from it. One might wonder why the Plymouth colony fared so well and so quickly when the Jamestown colony struggled with want and starvation for so long. Why was it that the pilgrims were able to make peace with their Indian neighbors and the Jamestown colonists were constantly at war with them? The reason is rooted in each colony's purpose for coming to the new world. The Jamestown colonists came seeking gold. The pilgrims came seeking freedom to worship. The matter of purpose may seem like insignificant trivia to us, but when you understand the history of the colonies, you realize just how much that difference made in the establishment of America and freedom itself. The people in both colonies had been brought up in the same European feudal system. Both came from the same country, but the purpose with which the pilgrims came made them more desirous to treat each other as equals. The Jamestown colonists came with the feudal system classes with every intention of establishing a colony with those same classes firmly in place. The lords and nobles expected the peasants and crew to do the work, building homes, planting fields, and searching for their elusive gold. Their job, of course, was to govern and reap the fruits of the underclasses' labors. That may have worked out fine in England, but in America, if everyone didn't work, everyone starved. That was a lesson that took Jamestown colonists many torturous years of war and hunger to realize. The pilgrims came to America seeking freedom, but they also knew they needed order. So before they even set foot on land, the pilgrims organized a government with the signing of the Mayflower Compact, an awesome document I, I, everyone should read. It was a document that guaranteed just and equal laws to govern all residents of the community, regardless of their religious convictions. The, concept, con the concepts contained in the compact were all based on biblical reasoning, which the pilgrims had become very familiar with as they read the Bible together with their families every day. The first thing the pilgrims did when they landed was build a common house where the people could worship and gather. Once that was done, they began building individual homes and planting crops. Everyone worked together as a community and no one owned anything, but the community owned everything. Everything came from the community, everything went to the community, and everyone received an equal share. It was in fact the first experiment in Christian communism. It seemed the perfect expression of brotherly love. Why wouldn't the pilgrims who were such devout witnesses of Christ want to serve their neighbors in this way? But the pilgrims learned very quickly that their communal idea did not sustain their fledgling colony. It could not. William Bradford, who became governor of the colony, explained the results of their experiment in his diary. 
He said young, able-bodied men who were perfectly fit to work complained that they were expected to spend their time and strength to work for other men's women and children with no compensation whatsoever. They felt it was terribly unjust. What incentive did they have to put in a hard day's work? The women started feigning sickness, and there was a sudden epidemic of bad backs among the men. Everyone received an equal portion of food and goods regardless of how much work they did, so why would they work harder? Why would they work at all? The result of their experience was less production, less food, which led to less rations to share. While it wasn't the same kind of society that Jamestown had established, the results were just as devastating. Half of the pilgrims died during that first winter, including William Bradford's wife. He witnessed firsthand what a costly and destructive mistake their experiment in collectivism had been. The pilgrims learned a valuable lesson from the experience. They realized that socialism gave no incentive to the most creative and industrious among them to work any harder than anyone else. Collectivism had, in fact, prevented the exercise of personal motivation. It had stifled human energy. So after dabbling in collectivism, socialism, and communism, the colonists decided to try a new experiment, self-reliance. With the aid of their Indian neighbors, they learned how to produce their crops and harvest more fish. They completely did away with their communal disbursements by assigning all members private property rights of land, as well as the right to profit from their own industry. What happened next was a sudden, robust release of human energy that proved to all of Europe you could make a good home in America. It was the first experiment in Christian capitalism, and it was a huge success. The pilgrims became more industrious than they had ever imagined, than they even imagined they could. They planted more corn, built more homes and churches, opened shops, organized trade, and true to the word, and true to their word, paid off the London sponsors who had made their journey to America possible. In each instance, the pilgrims had a Christian heart and purpose. In each instance, between Jamestown and the pilgrims, um, and uh, the Jamestown and the Pilgrims, there was an obvious difference between the way that they ran. But in the Pilgrims case, they they had a good heart, whether it was the capitalism or the or the uh, communism. It was all the it was all this came from the same heart. In each instance, the Pilgrims had a Christian heart and purpose In each they had a will to survive. But in the first, they were totally OK with others providing for their survival. And in the second, they worked like dogs to provide for their own. So what changed? Was it a desire to turn a profit? Was it fear of starvation? No. It was because now they had a personal interest and personal stake, and suddenly they cared. The pilgrims had no problem being slothful when it was for the community's benefit, but when the responsibility for their own family survival was put square on their shoulders and they knew their family would benefit from their own labors, they immediately had a deep desire to give it everything they had. So the purposes for which the Plymouth and Jamestown colonies operated is not just insignificant trivia. It is in fact profoundly relevant. While Jamestown continued for decades to rely on Europe for supply ships for their survival, Plymouth became a source of supplies for Europe. It was the success of Plymouth, not the establishment of Jamestown, which initiated the Great Puritan migration, leading to the rapid colonization of America. So if we're going to be uh, self-reliant, 
we should, you know, have ideas of how we can be self-reliant. So in the um, Cottage Meeting Resource Guide on page 260, we list some of these things more in detail with some ideas, but this is the, the general list. Uh, we can start by doing something very simple and create a simple first aid kit. Um, prepare a 72-hour emergency kit. Try a new recipe with food items that have a long shelf life. Plant a small garden or use containers to grow a few vegetables. Use, metal, use meal planning for grocery shopping. I cannot even begin to tell you how much time and money that has saved me um, and, the, and lessened the anxiety. I, I knew what we were going to have. We, I had a two-week menu. I would look at the menu in the morning and I knew what would, to get out to plan for the meal that evening. And at four o'clock, when the what's for dinner question comes, I didn't collapse and go, oh, but the other side of that is when I would go to the grocery store, I knew exactly what I needed because I knew what I was going to make and I saved money. I brought home what I needed and I would buy a little bit more of something that I used a lot. And it allowed me to slowly build up a, a storage of food that I that I often used while providing um, the necessities for the things that I knew I was going to be making. Um I swear by menus, <laughs> menu planning, um, avoid debt. This is a tough one, right? Spending less than you make. I just read an article about uh, Todd Peterson, who is the, um, the founder and president of Vivent Home Security. And he, when he met his wife, before they even got married, he said, well, I just want you to know I'm going somewhere. I'm doing things. And, and, and I want to marry you and I want you to be a part of it. But, we need to live on as little as possible for as long as possible so I can achieve my goals. Well, she married him anyway. They're now billionaires. <laughs> but for a long time, they lived on as little as possible for as long as possible so that they could put money into that business that they were growing. Sometimes we we, we, come, we come into this culture and this society where it's like, if you can't have it, you should have it. So go get a credit card and get it. And that's not the way, I mean, credit was credit and debt was something that our founding families took very seriously. And today it's just like, yeah, you should have it too. Go get it. And so we, we have a tendency to buy more than what we need and not plan for when we don't have. And so this is an opportunity for us to sit back and look at our budget and, and think about what does that mean, which is the next thing, establishing a budget. <laughs> it seems like a simple thing, but... Um, you know, and, and it's not like it's, I, I mean, when my husband and I started doing a budget, he, he put things in there like um, uh, dining out and entertainment. I'm like, why are you putting that in there? And he goes, this is not in there. We're not spending it. And I said, oh, well, let's up the entertainment budget then <laughs> if we had it, um, have a cash reserve. And these are the kind of things that, um, you know, the, the, the stalwarts of, of, um, economic sound sense will, will teach you, uh, like David, what's his name? David, I know one of you guys know him. My husband just swears by the guy. Um, anyway, he's, he's got some great, uh, great programs that, that talk about this. Begin a food storage plan. We have a whole entire section on our website that, that has, you know, how can you start a food storage plan slowly? Um, so I'm just going to, uh, tell you another, um, quick story. Um, it's, uh, when we lived in Hawaii, there was a, um, there was a woman, uh, the tsunami came. Okay. They had a tsunami and tsunamis don't usually happen. Everybody was, was slamming Hawaii for not being prepared. Well, they hadn't had a tsunami, so they know how to prepare. They had, they'd never had a tsunami. 
And so the first time the tsunami hit, everybody was like, oh my gosh, what do we do? What do we do? And so everybody went up to the to the hills on the island and there was terrible traffic jams and it was just awful. So they had a better plan the next time around. They created an inundation zone. Who actually does need to leave and who can stay? But that so that first time, um, my friend, she was she had been off island on vacation with her family and she came back a little bit early. And this it was right before the tsunami. And when the tsunami hit, she like everybody else went up to the hill on Tripler by the hospital and um she stayed there for the day and then um she came you know finally she was able to get back the wee hours of the night um to uh back to her home and her neighbor came over the next day now her neighbor is uh the wife of a four-star admiral so her neighbor comes over the next day and she said oh my gosh i was i am so glad to see her back i was worried about you and she's like I thought you were off island and she goes oh I came back early and she goes well I was I was really worried because I thought you weren't here and 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 I didn't know how to get into your house and I was like what am I going to do and she said then I remembered oh wait my husband's an admiral I can get a key from this from the security force and my friend is just sitting there with her jaw to the floor and saying why did you need in my house and she said well I didn't know how I was going to get food and I knew you had food she was like oh my gosh and she said I have a great idea how about I sit you down and I can show you how you can plan out your own plan to have your own food so that you don't have to worry about, about it. And she said, why would I do that when you have it? This is the mentality that we have across the country. So um, if you do have it, I would highly advise you to not let people know that you have it, but we should start storing our own food because when people get hungry, things get ugly. And we should have medication that we need. We anything that that we that we use, we should have in there. Um, pay, my Patriot Supply is a great place. There's a lot of long-term food storage that places that you can go. But I tell people all the time, if you want to be the rich people, when the zombie apocalypse hits, store toilet paper and tampons. You're going to be the rich people. Okay, so. <laughs> This is um this this was a campaign that they had in the 40s. They had these really cool um these these cards that vintage cards that they had that when well, they weren't vintage then, but they are now. And uh the seeds of victory, the fruits of the fruits of victory. You plant the seeds and this is the fruit. So they had all these seeds, victory seeds, and then they were encouraging people to to stock up and learn how to can and learn how to do these things. Now, you know, we have the cans are already there, so we just get them and keep keep track of the shelf life. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 says, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So the, the idea of, of hard work, um, responsibility, uh, self-reliance, limited government, all of these things fall within the law of the harvest. So uh, for as part of this week's presentation, I, if you guys can get a copy of the film, Rudy, I think you could probably find it online on Amazon or something. This is an awesome film that you can use to, to share with your children and grandchildren and watch it together and, and start a conversation. This is a kid who had a dream of going to Notre Dame. He was going to play football with Notre Dame. And and he's just this little short guy <laughs> and it's like everybody was thought he was crazy he had poor grades and it's his whole higher experience of, of everything that he sacrificed and everything that he went through to be able to reach his dream it is a true story and he played one game 
for Notre Dame. It is pretty cool. Um, you can read the full Pil Pilgrim experiment. I just gave little excerpts of it. Uh, it's a great story. And then there are two um, there are two chapters in my book, Women, America's Last Best Hope, Fort Knox and Stimulating Facts that tie directly into this presentation. Great reads. And I, excuse me, I'm going to get those uh, copies to um, Hannah so she can share them. For next week, uh, if you can, I, I am almost positive that this film is on Amazon, but I'm sure you can find it somewhere online. The Girl Who Wore Freedom. If you guys get a chance to watch that film this week, I, I would really add to um, the presentation next week, The Girl Who Wore Freedom. And then you could also, if you want to, read A Mother's Garden because we're going to be talking about that. So The Law of the Harvest, very good principles. Everybody should recognize and adopt because then we understand that the government does not have the authority to do what they're doing. And they can only have the power that we give them. So if we, the more of us who are aware of what powers, limited powers they have, the more chance we have of limiting those powers again and making them aware that they're acting completely outside the scope of the United States Constitution. So thank you for joining me today. Mm -hmm.